Four for physics. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the Four for Physics show. Today we have a range of topics to discuss, with a couple of interviews, quizzes, and even a heated debate at the end. So stay tuned till the end. Up first, we have a general physics quiz. Thanks, Harry. Welcome to the general physics quiz. There will be ten questions. I will read out the question, then give you three options for the answer. You will have ten seconds to answer, then I will say the correct answer. First question. Uh, who discovered gravity? A. Albert Einstein. B. Sir Isaac Newton. Or C. Robert Hooke. Patrick. Uh, Patrick, what's your answer? B. That is correct. Next question. If you throw a ball in the air, what is the name given to the curve it creates? A. A bridging curve. B. Parabola. Or C. Hyperparameter. What's your answer? B. B is correct. Next question. What does Ohm's law help us with? A. Electricity. B. Magnetism. Or C. Gravity. A. That is correct. Patrick Rowan. Uh, what sort of electricity do you get when you rub two balloons together? A. Current electricity. B. Static electricity. Or C. Glitchy electricity. Patrick. If you got a first, what's your answer? It's B. B is correct. Next question. What does light travel fastest in out of these options? A, air, B, water, or C, vacuum? Patrick. You got it first. What's your answer? C. C is correct. Next question. Do you weigh less, the same, or more when you're at the equator? Patrick. What's your uh, answer? More. More is incorrect. You want to have a go? Less. That's correct. <laughs> All right, next question. What letter is given to show amps? A, I, or P? Fionn. Pat. Fionn. What's your answer? A. A is correct. Hmm. Next question. How many pounds is equal to one kilogram? A, two, B, 2.2, or C, 2.1? Patrick. What is your answer? B. Uh, B is correct. What name is to describe something going from a solid straight to a gas? A, sublimation. B, deposition, or C, evaporation? Patrick. You got it first. What's your answer? Sublimation. Sublimation is correct. That's all for this quiz. I believe Fionn... I hate to admit it, but that quiz told me I better take another look at those topics. I only got about five or six right. Up next, we have a more specific area of physics, aerodynamics in Formula One. Hello, BlackRock College Radio listeners. Today, Kadar and I will be telling you about physics in F1. F1 is most, one of the most heavily funded sports in the world and encourages engineering originality in each car, especially when compared to other races such as the Indy 500, where it is much more focused on driver skill with very few differences between cars. This means that F1 is on the cutting edge of automotive development, creating and refining car technologies at a breakneck pace. A huge part of F1 is aerodynamics. While it may seem simple in most cars, it is possibly one of the most complex one. Today, I will be diving into a few key elements of F1 aerodynamics, including the use of downforce and why active aerodynamics is banned. Downforce is one of the most important factors in racing, and in F1 it is used to a whole new level. The average F1 car produces 5 Gs of downforce at its top speed. That means it is 5 times its weight pushing it down onto the track at top speed. This means an F1 car, in theory, could drive upside down at top speed. Sadly, there is no, currently not a driver mad enough to attempt this, so we'll probably have to wait a while before we can see this in real life. 
Different races take different approach to approaches to downforce. For example, in Indy racing, the cars often go far above the highest speed at a Formula 1 car can, but an F1 car could easily beat an Indy car around a track. Well, why is this? This is due to the different approaches to downforce. We saw this in action for the first time in 2019 when, in, when an Indy car raced at the US Grand Prix venue, the Circuits of America, allowing for direct comparison. Will Power got the fastest lap in the IndyCar racing at 1 minute and 46 seconds, averaging 115 miles per hour. Almost nine months later at the US Grand Prix, Volatari Bottas did it with a 1 minute 32 seconds in F1, 14 seconds quicker and averaging 133 miles per hour. IndyCars have much less downforce, so they can go fast in the straight, so they can get those really high top speeds. But due to that lower downforce, their corner performance is terrible compared to F1, where they can do far, fa they can go far faster in the corners. But what if you could have the best of both worlds? This is active aerodynamics. This is the technology of physically changing a car's aerodynamic properties while moving, depending on the desired effect. This means you could go faster in the straights and in the corners, as well as even having faster braking by adjusting aerodynamics so it can get more drag and resistance helping it slow down faster. Well, if this feature is so insanely good, then why is it banned in most motorsports? Well, the FIA chose to ban this in the late 60s because it was dangerous and unpredictable at the time. However, to this day, it remains banned. But why is this still banned if it could be safely made now? Well, the FIA doesn't want to allow it again, as it is a very general rule, and there are lots of things that could be allowed now that would, not need, to be that would need to be researched and developed for vast sums of money. And this is exactly what the FIA is trying to avoid. They're trying to turn F F1 away from the team who has the biggest pockets always winning. So this is why, despite how useful it is, active aerodynamics is still banned to this day. Thanks for, Thanks for listening. Make sure you stay tuned for the rest of my team's projects on F1. Kadar will be covering the interesting rivalry between Mercedes and Red Bull and how they use two very different methods to exploit physics in F1 and get them to win. Uh, thanks, Luca. Hello, everyone. Today, I will be discussing the difference in design between the Mercedes-AMG Petronas F1 team and the Red Bull Racing Honda F1 team. Both Red, Bull both Red Bull and Mercedes have incredibly different designs. Even by looking at the two cars by themselves and the parts within, Mercedes are focused on straight line speeds, which means having a long, elegant, and very skinny car. So this, is this design is a great for high speed and grip, uh, high grip circuits, which don't rely on a lot of downforce. Red Bull Racing have done quite the opposite, going for a small aggressive car with much more downforce uh, for tracks with low grip, such as Monaco. A lot of heads have been raised to whether or not Red Bull Racing have been up to something behind the scenes regarding parts of the car. Mercedes protested against this, against Red Bull, about this. Uh, this protest included components influencing a car's aerodynamic and performance, which, uh, such as the front wing and rear wing which must be regularly secured to the entire sprung part of the car and remain immobile in relation to the sprung part of the car. Mercedes suspected that Red Bull, uh, Red Bull wasn't complying with this fully, but they had no proof, so Mercedes filed an investigation against Red Bull. Quote, then on the straight lines, if you have the, the wing that gives you this additional speed, you have the optimum combination to and against us, said Toto Wolf, the Mercedes uh, team manager, after the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. After the FIA investigation took place. Red Bull's car was deemed legal in technical regulations of places uh, of Formula One. Uh, now, there have been multiple videos proving and comparing the two designs 
of this flexible rear wing and front wing. Both are similar, but neither better than the other. Red Bull Red Bull's design seemed to work in the better part of the uh, the on the first half of the season, with their driver Max Verstappen currently holding the lead of the championship after the Turkish Grand Prix. Thank you, Kadar and Luca, for that great insight into the side of F1 that we don't often hear about. Next, we have an interview about physics in the game of football. Uh, what's up and welcome to our physics show. Today, we'll be discussing the physics in football. Today, we're joined by the one and only Louis Fien. Hi, I'm here to talk about the physics in football and what is involved in the tra trajectory and motion of a football. So, Louis, tell us, what's, what causes a ball to move forward and why does the ball spin? Kicking a ball depends on the force we apply to it, the friction with the air and grass, kicking the ball with the side of our foot or a toe kick. A side-footed kick can add spin to the ball and cause it to be a much more accurate pass or shot, but it won't travel as far as a toe kick. A toe kick is less accurate, but the ball will travel faster and further. Oh, damn, that's, that's interesting. But does Newton's three laws of motion apply to kicking a ball? Well, yeah. Newton's first law of motion states that an object in motion will stay in motion and, and an object at rest will stay at rest. This applies to football because the ball has been kicked, because after the ball has been kicked, the ball is in motion. Newton's second law of motion basically states that the change in velocity is directly proportional to the force applied to the object. This means that in football, more force will be required to kick the ball forward. Newton's third law of motion states that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. When you kick the ball, you will feel the force of the ball kick back into your leg. Well, thanks, Louis. I guess you learn something new every day. Thank you for that, Amlan and Louis. Next, we have a little break from physics and sports, for now, anyway. This next topic is physics engines, a topic that is applicable in a lot of instances, no matter how boring it may be. Physics engines are very common these days, whether it be to calculate trajectories of objects in space or to make interactions between objects in a video game seem at least vaguely realistic. But it hasn't always been this easy to, complex, to render complex problems in simulations. What I would consider to be one of the first simulations of physics in a controlled environment took place in the hydraulic laboratory located in the Netherlands. This facility was opened in 1927 and was in use until 2008. The hydraulic laboratory researched many things, simulating waves and other variables in water on a small scale so the data could be applied in different fields of technology. The facility also owned the water lubos, vaguely translating to the watercourse forest, a series of hydrodynamic models used to simulate other scenarios, more so relating to construction projects. One example of such projects are the delta works, which are a series of coastline defending structures consisting of levees, sluices, storm surge barriers, and more, located in South Holland primarily. Now that we've covered the brief history of physics engines, it's time to talk about possibly the most common use of physics engines by the average person, video games. Many different games have different engines and in different programs, and most AAA, or huge games companies, have their own trademarked engines, if not several engines. One big engine at the moment is Unreal Engine 5, which, for example, is used by the game pretty much everyone knows at this point, Fortnite. Unreal Engine 3 is used in a lot of games, some of which you may recognize here. The Arkham games, Borderlands 1 and 2, the Mass Effect series, and Mortal Kombat 11, as long as many, many more. 
Keeping with the Unreal engines, the first Unreal engine was created for a game called, you guessed it, Unreal. Because the engine made it so easy to render and code games, the creator of Unreal, as well as the company Epic Games, decided to license it to other developers, a decision that allowed many different games to run on it. So, that concludes the short story about physics engines. Stay tuned for the sports quiz. Thank you, Donal, for telling us about a topic that, I'll admit, I didn't know anything about beforehand. Next up, we have a quiz on physics in sports. Welcome to our physics and sports quiz. I am joined by our two contestants, Peter and Luca, who will be competing against each other. The questions, five of them, will be based on the physics elements in sports. Please welcome Peter. Thank you, guys. Thank you. How do you think you'll do today? How many out of ten would you think you'll get? Remember, it's physics in sports, not just sports. Yeah, that's my main issue. I know the sports part, just not a lot of the sciencey bits. I take a solid six or seven out of ten. Well, that wouldn't be the worst outcome that could happen. And now, please welcome Luca. Thank you, Harry. Luca, how well do you think you'll fare in this quiz? Your opponent records will get about six or seven. What do you make of that? Anything under eight out of ten would be a disappointment for me, frankly. I don't know about Peter, but I have high hopes today. Well, we'll have to see. You each have a buzzer in front of you. After I've read out the questions, you can press it. But you only have three seconds after you've pressed it to call out the answer or else the turn passes to your opponent. If you buzz first, but get it wrong, your opponent gets a go. If both of you get it wrong, we add an extra question to the end. If there is a tie at the end, there will be a tiebreaker. Make sense? Yep. Perfect. We'll start you off with an easy one. Question one is, if I hit a tennis ball with topspin, does it go upwards and then downwards once it slows down, or downwards first and then curve upwards? I'm gonna have to give it to Luca. He was a fraction quicker. It goes upwards and then downwards. To get Topson on the ball in the first place, you have to hit it upwards. Correct. One point to you. The yes. second question is about Formula One. What is the main cause for a lockup? Peter, by a mile. A lockup is caused by a stopping of the brakes too hard, causing much too aggressive braking. That is correct. Question three. Now this one is a bit of a mouthful, so bear with me. In pool or snooker, or any billiards game, when you strike the cue ball against the cushion at an angle, describe the three angles that are then formed. There's the angle between the ball's path before it makes contact with the cushion and the line of the cushion, the angle between the ball's path before contact and its path after contact, and finally the path after contact and the cushion. Luke, we got it first. Mm. The angle between the two balls is 90 degrees, and the third angle plus the first angle also equals 90 degrees? I'm afraid that is incorrect. Peter? The exterior angles to the two balls are the same, and the middle angle is 180 minus the other two. Unfortunately for you, Luca, that is correct. A point to Peter. Question four. This one is slightly different. You will both get a chance to answer, the person in the lead guessing first. But before you hear this question, you need a bit of background. You should know that the average swing speed for a PGA Tour golfer is 110 miles per hour. With that in mind, how fast would you have to swing to get the pole to distort its shape when traveling in the air? The closest guess, guess gets the point. Hmm, are we assuming the ball doesn't distort at 110 miles per hour? Yes, we are. Then I'd say it's around 200 miles an hour. Luca? Upwards of 250 miles an hour. That is correct. It's still all up for grabs going into the last round. The last question is, 
in cricket, if you shine the left half of the ball, which way will it swing when bowled? Hmm. This, it swings to the opposite side of the shine. So in this case, to the right. Correct. Congratulations, Peter. You are a winner with three points to Lucas, two points. Thanks for that, Harry. Now we have our last sports-focused piece of the day, a segment on the physics behind the game of golf. Thanks, Harry. Did you know that the impact in between the golf club and the ball only lasts for one out of two thousandths of a second, but in this short time, the ball's velocity, trajectory, and the spin rate is determined? See, aerodynamics can be broken down into two main components, lift and drag. An example of this in, every, in your daily life is that when you put your hand out of the car, you can see the hand rotating in the airstream. The science behind the collision. When the golf club strikes the ball, an impact collision occurs. The ball is compressed, gaining potential energy. This energy is then converted into kinetic energy when the ball rebounds off the club. Does the ball have an elastic limit? Yes, it does. One needs to swing the ball, golf club about a speed of 300 miles per hour to slightly distort the ball's shape. PGA Tour pros average around only 110 miles per hour. Do dimples make a difference? Yes, they do, surprisingly. There are around 400 dimples on each ball. Dimples affect both the drag and lift of the ball. These dimples create a thin layer of air that sticks to the ball's surface. This allows the air to follow the ball's surface around the back of the ball more, which makes it um, a dimple ball has more than around half the drag of a smooth ball. The dimples can also affect lift. A smooth ball with a backspin creates the lift by changing the airflow, which makes it act like there's a wing of an air... I'm sorry. Start again. And yeah. Start that sentence again wherever you were. So, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry. Here we go in three, two, one. A smooth ball with backspin creates a lift by changing the airflow, which makes it act like the wing of an airplane. The dimples create a thin layer of air that sticks to the ball's surface. Ball spin contributes to around half of the ball's lift. The dimples make up for the other half. Therefore, a ball with dimples travels twice as far than a ball without dimples. Simplified. Dimples in a golf ball only optimise the way a ball interacts with the air around it. Hello and welcome to our Flat Earth debate. Amlan and Connor are saying that the Earth is flat, and myself, Evan and Don will be against this statement. One reason on how the Earth being flat is not physically possible is that the theory states that you will fall off the Earth if you make it to the edge. This would not work as people such as Ferdinand Magellan who have circumnavigated the planet would not have survived for us to later see evidence of their travels. Another big reason would be if seasons were to work on a flat earth, this would have to mean the sun would need to orbit the sun in a circle above the flat earth. This would work if time zones did not exist, but they do. The earth is pulling everything it is made up of, all its mass towards its center. This happens evenly all over the earth, causing it to take on a round shape. We can see the earth from satellites, these images of the Earth show the Earth in its round state. The force of gravity depends on the distance between two interacting objects, and the only three-dimensional object that you can make with a single distance is a sphere. Therefore, it has to be spherical. If you travel to Cape Town, you cannot see the North Star. This is because you have gone to the opposite side of the planet, which proves the Earth could not be flat. The flat Earth is an ancient conception of Earth's shape as a disk. 
Many ancient cultures subscribe to a flat earth idea. It has been proven impossible in many distinct aspects. Here are some ways that make it physically impossible. If the earth is flat, this means that the sun rotates above the earth in a circular motion. This would mean that there would be no night time at all since all the countries are always receiving sunlight. Another way to prove this wrong is the temperature system would not make sense if there were no equator on the flat earth since all countries would be receiving direct sunlight from above. During lunar eclipses, when the earth's orbit places it directly between the sun and the moon, creating a shadow in the process, the shadow on the moon's surface is round. This shadow is the planet and it is a wonderful way to show the spherical shape of the earth. When you are standing on a cliff, you can see further than if you were standing flat on the ground. If the earth was flat, this would not matter because everything on flat ground, you would be able to see anything that your eye can make out in the distance. The earth is flat. Why? Because I'm standing on flat ground. Have you ever felt unbalanced on your feet while standing up straight? No, that's because the earth is as flat as a table. How is it physically possible for us to stand on solid flat ground as on a slope on a globe supposedly round? Do buildings bend over the curvature of the earth? No, of course not. They stand up straight built on the solid flat ground of the earth we live on. Our ancestors in the ancient world knew more than we do today and all it took is some imposter, Christopher Columbus, to falsely claim that just because he had not fallen off the edge of the world that, or eaten by sea monsters that for all we know were just not hungry as he passed by, that the earth is round. The most likely scenario is that he merely did not travel far enough across the flat surfaces mm -hmm. of our world to reach its end where he'd obviously fall off to endlessness of space. Yeah, um, like my colleague Connor said, I also believe that the Earth is flat. Flat Earthers, each each gallon of water weighs 8.67 pounds. There are 6 million tons of water on Earth, yet gravity can't even hold helium down to the ground. But round Earthers, they're they going to say the reason gravity can't hold a helium balloon is that gravity works differently. I think not. Flat Earthers will we'll say, because I'm a flat earther, how come we never see satellites move in front of the moon? And round earthers will say, the reason for this is due to the fact that we're not always looking at the moon, so it's possible for the satellite to slip by. Bro, you, we literally see the moon in blue sky. How is that even possible? We, we, we should be seeing satellites. My point being is the earth is flat. It's called horizon because it's horizontal, not a horizon. Rounders will say the word came before we knew the world was round, and it was commonly accepted uh, that the world was flat. The, the word horizon became natural due to the appearance of the horizon to the naked eye. I think not. Flat earthers uh, will say, because I'm a flat earther, by the way, what about uh, continuance? continuous surveillance we have on the moon yet no satellite has been recorded going in front of the moon like how does that make sense like how is it that a helicopter supplied with constant fuel can hover for hours but land back in the exact same place if the earth was constantly spinning how like how do we know that the gravity works differently on a gas rather than a solid pilots view the earth as a curve but they have viewing glass shaped in a circular way. And the Red Bull jump from space was filmed from a fish eye lens. 
but from his altitude, it would be impossible to see the curvature. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, I believe the Earth is flat. Thank you guys for that very entertaining debate. Well, that wraps up our segment on the radio. That's all from us. Thank you and goodbye. Four, 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 four